This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is February the 10th, 2009. Now, you know what's happening here. We're having this fundraising marathon. And we want her money. We want you to call up and subscribe to KPFA. Keep hope alive. You know, it's the vision thing. We've been here for 60 years. You know what's the right thing to do. But me personally, I messed up. I don't have a premium Hang my head in shame. You have to just do it just because it's the right thing to do, and you know how far that gets us. <laughs> Talk about hedonic adaptation. I was listening to C.S. song today. I just love that hedonic adaptation. I'm going to use that. wonder if that's like... My problem is has Ozymandias melancholia. Yes, I got that one from a Woody Allen movie. I love that. Uh... Oh, boy, we all need uh, labels for our uh, angst, our despair. We need a name for it, yes. Language is where it's at. That's what the new prayers knows. It's Black History Month, and we've got a, what is it, now that we've got a black president, maybe we can skip the month thing, but no, no. It's very important. Um, actually, if you think about it, we are black history now. The United States is part of the history of uh, African Americans on the planet. Uh, I got a big kick out of uh, um, Barack's first press conference. Uh, and I was so grateful that he called on the women. Uh, I just like it that he's... He's a master of language, uh, straightforward, you know. Um, <laughs> he he was not too cross. Uh, he he was a little bit, just a little bit, um, scolding uh, the the retro Republicans. You know, he he deplored their sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Oh, I think I think those guys. Know just what they're up to. My favorite quote from Oscar Wilde, yes. To think you can be rich and not act rich is to think you can be blind and not act blind. You know damn well what they're doing. They don't like the poor. Uh, they think that money is thrown away on the, uh, the needy, yes, the needy. <laughs> Sharing the wealth, that's a socialism, socialism. Uh, said George Bernard Shaw said, we should have had socialism long ago, but for the socialists. Anyway, my favorite, all week I have been wringing my hands over that bit about the honeybees. Uh, the more I think about it, the more symbolic or emblematic it becomes. Uh, any child knows that a subsidy for honeybees would be the first order of the day in a civilized society, uh, our whole Central Valley depends on bees, you know, pollination, plant life, something like air and water, human survival. I bet, uh, I bet those Republicans, or even some Democrats, those guys who are uncomfortable, the ones who don't want to help the honeybees, you know, who think that's frivolous, I think they associate the bees with the birds, birds and bees, that means sex, pollination, honey, milk and honey. They're thinking about flowers and pollen and nature. 
Oh, my God, it's feminine. All that, uh, all that Dionysian stuff, uh, goes along with art and music and disorder, you know, all those sexy things that the uptight folks find so terribly dangerous. It's their psychology. Uh, now, in the last Great Depression, uh, FDR understood that we needed to get a federal theater going, you know, and pay the artists. Uh, it was understood in those days uh, that, of course, an artist is a worker. <laughs> Besides, if you don't have liberal arts, you don't have uh, human beings, you know. What would we do without music and uh, without our better selves, whatever you want to call it. Uh, anyway, I talk about that endlessly. Uh, I just keep thinking that we should try a little harder. Just try a little bit harder, you know. Uh, no, try a little bit softer. Try softer. That's what we need to do. Uh, get some of these plans going, you know. Uh, I think they're going to put back the money for education, Bill's passed the Senate's going back to the House, and the President was very articulate, very articulate in his uh, press conference explaining to the people. I think I'm going to call him the educator. Yes, he is the educator. Somebody has to do it. I wish there were more of him. Uh, apparently, people need to have these things explained to them. Uh, they need it explained to them that if you do not educate, enlighten, and tenderize your youth, well, what will they do? They'll go in the army and... <laughs> oh, yes, we will have uh, battalions of sociopathic sadists or nuts, you know. Uh, okay, you know the kind of folks. Uh, I, I listened to something about the recruiters complaining that, of course, nowadays they have to take the dropouts and lower their standards. Uh, and uh, these are the people who will be representing us around the world in our military machine. Uh, hmm. Rome. I'm not sure. I was listening to something to the effect that, that uh, General Petraeus paid the insurgents to... Uh, fight for the United States, and I thought, why not, if we can pay Iraqi insurgents, why not pay our domestic insurgents, the um, youth of our cities and our urban centers, uh, give them a job? Um, I think that that makes sense. Remember, we used to talk about paying people to go to school. That seems so decadent to the right wing, but... Uh, Enlightened societies do it all the time, you know, you just pay people to become serviceable to the larger group, to the um, body politic. Uh, I don't know, uh, one decent president may not be enough to turn things around, but let's keep, let's keep it in mind, let's push. Um, the late great Sigmund Freud told us that we're this destructive species in the end. He got gloomier and gloomier. I think that maybe, maybe both things are true. I know that the best circumstances are needed to create beautiful people, with the usual exceptions to prove the rule. 
My exception here in front of me is a, a piece on James Baldwin, the exception, a guy who was born to be bad, a miserable childhood, but he, like so many poets and prophets, he arose from the ashes, from the rubble, like a phoenix. He's my uh, black history hero of the month, right up there with Barack Obama. <laughs> Baldwin died back in 1987. Oh, golly, yes, indeed. Um, Barack wrote that James Baldwin despaired. He himself uh, found more positive uh, emotion, more positive feeling in the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, but let's face it, it's Baldwin who turned despair into art. He's the poet. I recommend to you a New Yorker essay for 9 February. It has a profile of the late James Baldwin. Uh, 9 February and 9 and 16 February New Yorker. Uh, oh dear. Uh, Baldwin is always with me. I think of him as a seer, that is, one who sees, S-E-E-R. He sees so much, and he teaches us what to look for. Let me just read through the very end of this article, uh, because it's uh, a positive spin on Baldwin, who, uh, in his despair, I think, was in a strange way, prophesying the the world to come. The article is by Claudia Roth Pierpont. It's titled uh, Another Country, the title of one of Baldwin's books, big novel which uh, talked about the relationships among people of the races, different races. Oh, it's in the book section. Claudia Roth Pierpoint ends by saying, It is shocking to realize that as early as 1951, and based on no evidence whatever, Baldwin saw that our fantastic racial history, to quote, fantastic racial history, end quote, might ultimately be for the good. He wrote in an essay, quote, Out of what has been our greatest shame, we may be able to create one day our greatest opportunity. End quote. And that's it. It's all come true, Jimmy, wherever you are, wherever you are. I hope you hear. I hope you know. Anyway, sorry to interrupt uh, Claudia. Pierpont, she goes on to write. James Baldwin would have been 84 had he lived to see Barack Obama elected president. Oh, that is, that is heartrending. If Jimmy Baldwin had lived to be 84, and think of, um, and of course he lived so much longer than Martin King, who was dead before 40. Um, Claudia goes on to write, it is an event that is the uh, election of Barack Obama. It is an event that he might have imagined more easily in his youth than in his age, but an event to which he surely contributed. 
through his essays and novels, his teaching and preaching, the outsized faith and energy that he spent so freely in so many ways. During his wanderings, Baldwin warned a friend who had urged him to settle down. Uh, he warned his friend that, quote, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. End quote. It was, of course, impossible to make such a place alone. But by the grace of those who have kept on working, as he put it, quote, to make the kingdom new, to make it honorable and worthy of life, we have at last the beginnings of a country to which James Baldwin could come home. And I like the treatment in this essay of Baldwin's uh, religious upbringing. It's this curious thing in a time when those of us who think we're clever uh, are a little appalled at the state of our fundamentalist Christian <laughs> folks here in the U.S. of A. Baldwin seemed to be able to turn his Christianity into something more positive. He he observed his father in the church, and he said that he felt that his father was calling upon God to kill the white man, and that he himself uh, wanted to keep his own heart free of hatred and despair. Uh, so interesting. Uh, he went into the church, let's see, at 14. He's in there uh, behind the pulpit in a Harlem storefront church. So many writers find their way uh, through a kind of theater. I think of them as actors. Even Toni Morrison says she began in the theater. Um, this writer, Claudia Pierpont, writes, It takes a fire-breathing religion to blunt the hatred and despair. In Go Tell It on the Mountain, that is the 1953 autobiography of James Baldwin was a book that knocked my socks off. It changed my life. I uh, I had read Richard Wright's uh, Black Boy and that was about the South and many things. Go Tell It on the Mountain is about life, the life of the young boy in Harlem. <laughs> I remember they made a movie at some point and the actor who played the little boy, John Grimes, uh, they, they, I don't know whether it was, I don't even remember who was in the novel. It's a picture of uh, James Baldwin as a little kid going to see Betty Davis in the movie of Human Bondage. And the sight of this boy looking at this insane, neurotic white woman on the screen. I don't know why it got me giggling um, for years. Anyway, um Go Tell It on the Mountain is the autobiographical coming-of-age novel that Baldwin wrote and rewrote for a decade, centering on the battle for the soul of the young John Grimes. On the occasion of his 14th birthday, in a shouting and swaying Harlem storefront church, the boy uh, discovered that... Uh, a way of winning the love of his preacher father, you see, is to be saved. Oh, his description of his, his, uh, I would call it, uh, 
his trance, his, uh, <laughs> yes, his salvation, uh, an impossible task, of course, to win his father's love. Uh, still, part of the nobility of this remarkable book derives from Baldwin's reluctance to stain religious faith with too much psychological knowingness. More of the nobility lies in its language, which is touched with the grandeur of the sermons that Baldwin had heard so often in his youth. Now, I know I'm making a footnote here. I know that a lot of people cringe when I say that it is the uh, the King James Bible, an Elizabethan masterpiece, as you probably know, um, that has so stained or so uh, ennobled the works of so many black writers in America. Uh, oh, from Toni Morrison on out then to... Uh, this article goes on to talk about Baldwin's uh, immersion in the works of other writers when he got to Paris. Uh, he would not be like his father... Or his father's fathers, John Grimes, the character in Go Tell It on the Mountain Swears. He would have another life. Baldwin uh, was led by the supreme authorial guides. Let's see, Henry James, James Joyce, all of them. Uh, and he set out turn his shabby Harlem streets and churches into world-class literature. The book's moral and, and linguistic victories are seamless. Uh, although Baldwin's people speak a simpler and irregular black grammar, their loosely uttered ain'ts and I reckons flow without strain into prose of a Jamesian complexity, of big biblical richness, as he penetrates their minds. Well, I don't know. I think that's a bit, um, that sounds a little bit Anglo-centric there. I don't know. <laughs> Baldwin wrote about the strictures of Harlem piety while living the bohemian life in Paris, hanging out in cafes and jazz clubs and gay bars, having affairs with both men and women in New York and Slowly, he had come to accept that his desires were exclusively for men. He, um, <laughs> yes, this goes on to explain at great length that um, Baldwin was, like so many writers, um, a bit of a problem for others. Uh, he would just show up and uh, uh, have to be taken care of in order to write. Um, in the winter of 1951, let's see, I was just getting out of high school, and James Baldwin packed his unruly manuscript, and he went to stay with his current lover in a small Swiss village where he completed the book in three months. He listened to Bessie Smith records to get the native sounds back in his ears. Published two years later, the book was a critical success. Baldwin claimed to have missed out on the National Book Award only because Ralph Ellison had won for Invisible Man a year before, and he said, two Negroes in a row was just too much. <laughs> Let me read you some more of this. I, I, I was going to read to you today from Barack Obama's um, autobiography because I think it is so, so, what is it? Just, just 
top line, you know, everything's in it. It's, it's as if everything comes together. In Barak's book, all these loose ends and threads, and then he manifests everything right there. Uh, I was going to read you about his uh, work in Chicago, but I want to read just a little bit more, uh, because, of course, Baldwin was struggling, as writers do, with his significant elder, Richard Wright, about 16 years older than uh, Baldwin. And I find it interesting how each generation, each new um, manifestation, you know, it's like this rope on which there are these big knots, and uh, each new new consciousness, new thinker, has to take all the old stuff, you know, and just, uh, just dig through all that old straw till he finds what he needs and, uh, you know, does a little rewrite. Let me read just a little bit more about what Baldwin thought about uh, Richard Wright. Claudia writes, It was Wright whom he still took for the monster he had to slay. Or, as he sometimes worried for his father. I have a footnote here. Baldwin once said that he was so scared of his father that he never, after his father died, he was never scared of anything else, never scared of anyone his entire life. I feel the same, right? What luck to have uh, had a father who was murderous, you know. Saves you the rest of your life. Uh, nothing scares you. Anyway, uh, Baldwin published a book of essays in 1955, and he included two essays that were vehemently anti-right. Oh, gosh. They were titled in direct challenge, Notes of a Native Son. Of course, now Richard Wright had published Native Son, which was a story about the effects of racism on uh, a black American. It turns him into a monster. Right. Now, Baldwin's um, book was not, by intent, a political book. In the first few pages, Baldwin explained that race was something he had to address in order to be free to write about other subjects. The writer's only real task was to recreate out of the disorder of life that order which is art. (sighs) That's what he felt. Okay, the best of his essays are indeed closely personal but invariably open to a political awareness that endows them with both order and weight. Baldwin's greatest strength, in fact, is the way the personal and the political intertwine so that it becomes impossible to distinguish between these aspects of a life. Another footnote here takes me to uh, Doris Lessing's A Golden Notebook. You remember Doris Lessing? She had a red notebook, a blue notebook, a black notebook, and finally she put all the pieces together and wrote The Golden Notebook. That's when you put together the personal and the political. The mind, the body, the physical... Mental, spirit, all that good stuff. Uh, Connect all the dots. Anyway, uh, Baldwin's, uh, the essay on Baldwin goes on to say the story of his father's funeral is also the story of a riot that broke out in Harlem that day. (laughs) Serendipitous, yes. Summer of 1943, a white policeman shot a black soldier set off a rampage in which white businesses were looted and smashed. Baldwin writes, 
for Harlem had needed something to smash. If it had not been so late in the evening and the stores had not been closed, he warned, a lot more blood might have been shed. In 1955, the injustice of the black experience was no longer any news. If Baldwin's warning drew attention, it was overshadowed by the gentler yet more startling statements that made his work unique. In this newly politicized context, there was a larger lesson to be drawn from the hard-won wisdom offered from his father's grave. That hatred, quote, Hatred never failed to destroy the man who hated. This was an immutable law. Now, I'm pausing again and making footnote. Uh, I think that is something that we can trust Barack Obama to have integrated, to have internalized. He understands that the man who hates is destroyed by that hatred. That far he's gotten. We'll see if he can take the next step and hang on. Anyway, Baldwin was addressing a predominantly white audience. Many of his essays were originally published in white liberal magazines. He sounds a tone that is very much like sympathy. Living abroad, he explained, had made him realize how irrevocably he was an American. He confessed that he felt a closer kinship with white Americans that he saw in Paris than with the African blacks, whose culture and experiences he had never shared. <laughs> I remember a friend once telling me, she said, you know, he got off a plane in the middle of, the middle of a third world nation, she said, and, you know, you're more American than you are any other tribe or race or anything. Anyway, uh, this piece goes on to say just a little more. I wish I had time to read you the whole thing. Uh, the race's mutual obsession in America with their long if hidden history of physical commingling had finally made them something like a family. See, Baldwin understood that we are all related literally, biologically. For these reasons, Baldwin revoked the threat of violence. With an astonishingly broad reassurance, he believed American Negroes have no desire for vengeance. Hmm. The relationship of blacks and whites is, after all, a blood relationship. Perhaps the most profound reality of the American experience, he wrote, cannot be understood until we recognize how much it contains the force and the anguish and the terror of love. I remember the first time that I uh, tried to read the material about uh, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, I realized that masses of Americans still think that uh, <laughs> that our races are separate and different and <laughs> that, <laughs> that we are not uh, all Americans, all kin. Not just kith, but absolute blood kin. Now, I need you to call KPFA and uh, subscribe, folks. I, I know it's too late. It's too late. Too late, too late, too late. Um, but I want you to call us. I want you to call us at 1-800-KPFA. Yes, he forwards. See, 1-800-439-5732. Or 
if you live uh, close by. Oh, here we go. There's my theme song. Once again, I've probably failed to raise any money. I do hope that you will call in later today and do me the honor of uh, contributing to KPFA, subscribing to this station. I've only been here 25 years, and <laughs> I don't know what I've learned in that time, but I do know that I would be lost without your letters, your feedback. You have educated me. The audience at KPFA has given me a Ph.D. in politics and in psychology. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air, not Thursday, but next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In celebration of African Heritage Month, KPFA recognizes the contributions and culture of African Americans and people of African ancestry. Today, we look at Karen Bass. Karen Bass is the majority leader of the California State Assembly. She is the first woman and first African American to hold such a position of leadership. Miss Bass discovered her interest in politics early during the turbulent 60s while she was still in middle school and was later inspired in adult life by the community activism of the Black Panther Party. During her tenure in the California State Assembly, Bass has championed reform.